one is setting up an environment where it's okay to fail. And that's one of the biggest issues in different organizations and certainly in different countries is if there is a huge stigma against failing and if there's always one right answer, people are quickly going to get that and they're not going to take any risks. And, you know, if you're not failing, sometimes you're not taking enough risks and you're certainly not coming up with really bold ideas that might not work out. So one of the key things is creating a very safe space for ideas because ideas are pretty fragile and um, if um, if you don't have a safe place, people are not going to essentially be willing to, to bring them to, to the world. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast, a member of the Education Podcast Network. Today we have on a rebroadcast of one of my mentors and heroes, Tina Selig. This was one of her early episodes, so we wanted to re-release it. Also, we're really busy this summer doing a lot of really cool things. So uh, our audience has quadrupled its size, at least, and so I wanted to re-release this. One, because Tina's books are... I, I, easily, this is the... Tina's books are the most I've ever gifted. Um, I've given this, like, especially what I... What I wish I knew when I was 20 and the new creativity rules I have given away a lot. Uh, these books have been really great for me, but also for my students. And also, I just think that Tina is one of those rare persons who really understands the innovation creativity process. And that's what we're going to get into today on this episode. Also, it was fun because Hunter joined me on this episode and we get into a little bit of the failure resume. I'm telling you, by the end of this episode, you are going to want to do your own failure resume and fill it out. It will serve you well. All right, enough gabbing. Get out your notebook, take some copious notes, connect with Tina Selig, follow her on Twitter, and uh, let the learning begin. Okay, we're joined right now by Tina Selig. Tina, thank you for being on. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I have to start off by saying, number one, uh, I'll get this fanboy moment out of the way. Uh, your books have inspired me. I've probably given away more copies of what I wish I knew when I was 20 to college or to high school graduates. And Genius um, got me going. And Inside Out is a staple of my classroom now. Um, so just from the, before we begin, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. And I have to tell you, you are an inspiration. I am. I love sharing the stories of how you've applied so many things you've learned in your classroom. Okay, good. We got that out of the way. And, and, and Hunter is joining me uh, as well. And Hunter's read your books as well. But let's dive right into it. So for the people that don't know you yet, um, tell everybody what you do there at Stanford University. I think you've got one of the coolest classes out there and explain how all that got started. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I do have one of the best jobs in the whole world. I run, uh, along with some colleagues, uh, the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. And I get to teach classes on creativity, on innovation, and entrepreneurship to students, undergrads, grad students, um, and certainly visitors who come in from all over the world. Uh, so you take you know, kind of existing, I'm not trying to pigeonhole them, but a lot of times you, you've got students that are really great students and a lot of times are great engineers and you foster that creativity. Um, when I started plowing through your second book, Ingenious, talk to me about that innovation cycle and how all that weaves together. Yeah. So what happened, I've been teaching classes on creativity and innovation for 
it's going to be 18 years in June. And what's happened over the years is as I keep doing this, I kept realizing there were some really big missing pieces and things that I could do some hand-waving about. But then when I realized I was really unable to answer some of my own questions. And so I decided to look at the whole process of, of creative problem from creative problem solving from very different angles. And what I realized is that there's so many levers we have at our disposal for unlocking creative problem solving. And so Ingenious essentially came out of that. Um, it started out as just my making essentially a laundry list of all the things I was teaching and then stepping back to look at them and say, okay, how does this all fit together? And when I realized that, that there are levers that we have as an individual and also levers as an organization to unlock creative problem solving. So as an individual, you have your knowledge, uh, which is essentially your toolbox for your imagination, your skills or your, your creative problem solving skills, but also your attitude. And these three things directly affect each other. Um, your attitude essentially unlocks this process. It's a really difficult process. And so if you don't have the right mindset, you're not going to actually apply these skills in, in a really meaningful way. And you need your, your knowledge because your knowledge, as I said, um, is the toolbox. If I wanted to invent a new type of flying car, I need to know something about engineering. If I want to cure cancer, I need to know something about biology. And then um, your imagination skills allow you to apply all of this. But that's not enough because you really need to understand the context you're in, the, in the environment. And as managers and leaders, uh, that's what we have control over. We can create the habitat, the resources, and the culture of, a, of an environment and that ends up really affecting every single individual and the type of problems we address. You touched on two things there that I found, you know, extremely important. What we work on a lot in the beginnings of Don's class and, and with a lot of the students that I, I work with um, is the idea of building that attitude and building that mindset and, and adjusting things so that people can see, you know, potential and things that they could do. How do you go about doing that on, um, on the level of your class? Yeah, so there's so many ways that you can really influence influence people's mindsets. It, it's funny. I I was talking with a visitor yesterday who was from uh, Singapore, and she was asking me, "Well, how can we make people in Singapore more creative?" And the the thing I thought about was, you know, at Stanford we have students from all over the world. They walk into the classroom, and I don't expect something different from someone who comes from a different part of the world. And the reason is we create the culture in the classroom that invites people to tap into these, these skills. And one is setting up an environment where it's okay to fail. And that's one of the biggest issues in different organizations and certainly in different countries is if there is a huge stigma against failing and if there's always one right answer, people are quickly going to get that and they're not going to take any risks. And, you know, if you're not failing, sometimes you're not taking enough risks and you're certainly not coming up with really bold ideas that might not work out. So one of the key things is creating a very safe space for ideas because ideas are pretty fragile and um, if um, if you don't have a safe place people are not going to essentially be willing to to bring them to to the world yeah talk about so I one of my favorite things that you've done is is the failure resume and, and that just I to this day I still use it and and getting the students to think about what their biggest failures were makes them reframe it into understanding of, okay, what came out of it? Because obviously the, some of the biggest hurdles for a lot of people to think is, and, and, and honestly, this is my beef with education, is that you can't fail. That'll be a bad grade. And if I get that bad grade, you know, as a high school teacher, 
I can't get into that college of my choice with a bad grade. But that failure resume that you have, uh, walk us through that and, and then what's come out of that. I have to tell you, this fear of failure and needing to get an A is so really, really um, detrimental to education. Amen. I mean, failure is part of the learning process. Is there any person you know who walked the first time they tried or rode a bicycle the first time they tried? Why do we expect adults as they take on more and more complicated things to never fail? It is complete. Not only is it unrealistic, it it is so detrimental to people trying things they haven't done before. Um, It was funny, one of my colleagues uh, shared with me an email he got from a student. I I mean, shocking, the student basically said, how many A pluses do you give in their class? Um, Because I need to get an A plus in your class in order to get into grad school. I mean, first of all, that can't possibly be true. I mean, (laughs) it just can't possibly be true. And yet this is what the student felt as though if he couldn't get an A plus, he wasn't even going to take the course. Well, and what I love about that is, is that, you know, you start awesome talk about reframing, but reframing those failures, if you play out the scenario, all of my greatest failures, matter of fact, one of my favorites to talk about when I was 16, I made some stupid decisions. And oh, I, I don't believe that. Um. I know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and those decisions made me grounded for three months. And there was this girl that I was promised myself I'd ask out, and I just never had the guts. And so I'd like, well, I now have an excuse. Um, I know that she'll say no, but at least she'll have a good excuse to say no because who asks somebody out three months in advance? And so I asked this girl, I'm like, look, I'm grounded till April. Would you go out with me? And she said yes. And that worst night of my life of getting in some trouble, um, I'm married to her now. And uh-huh, I, I, that's I, so great. Right. I love that <laughs> Maybe story. Maybe she liked you because you were the bad boy. I don't know. Oh, no, 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 no. I think it was sympathy. Like, oh, you poor kid. I, no, but but I, I loved it because one of the reasons I tell that story is it was the worst night of my life. Period. I yeah. mean, I got into some serious trouble, but it also made me reflect on some of my choices and, and all that other good stuff. But the other mistakes I've made in my life, in careers, I've made some horrendous decisions. And I can tell you, that was the origins of everything that I made the pivot on. So I, I, I love, couldn't agree more. love your failure resume. Well, I have to tell you, I was um, one of, I teach a PhD class with a fabulous colleague who's a venture capitalist. And we did an AMA, a kind of ask me anything session with these PhD students earlier this week. And one of the questions that one of the students asked us was, you know, what was your biggest disappointment, your biggest failure, your biggest setback? And both my colleague and I said, honestly, Every single setback we've had, personal, professional, academic, really did open the door to something else. And you really have to have that mindset that I I could not think of something that was so devastating that I wasn't able to recover from. And and honestly, I've been teaching a lot at San Quentin, up at the, the prison in California. Really? These are guys I've been teaching entrepreneurship to in this program called The Last Mile. These guys have made some big mistakes. They're in prison for 20 years. And the the folks who are in this program have been able to take this opportunity, right, this tragedy, and turn it an opportunity to turn their lives around, to learn coding, to develop their entrepreneurship skills so that when they come out, they're going to hit the ground running in terms of being able to, to really do something meaningful. And they, many of them said to me, 
I would not have been able to do that in the context I was in because it was such a very horrible environment. But once I was separated and yes, yes, it's been hard and being in prison is really terrible, but it gave me the time to reflect and time to learn the things I needed to learn so that when I get out there, I can, um, be a very, very different person. Oh, so so I think way. this is this, oh. I mean, you know, what do they have on their failure resume? So the idea, and, and honestly, I, I want to be very clear here. This is not something I always could do. I was one of those people who spent an enormous amount of time beating myself up about, oh, that stupid thing I said, or that really dumb thing I did. But once I was able to realize that these were Every single one was a learning opportunity. I even if I didn't write it down in my brain, I'd say, "Well, that's one more notation on my failure resume. What am I learned from it, and what am I going to do different today?" And it has allowed me that mindset of looking at failure as a learning opportunity to not just learn something, but to move on much more quickly. That is, uh, that's really fantastic. And I could not agree more with absolutely everything you're saying. You know, Don had his fanboy moment a little earlier on. So now, now is my turn. <laughs> I, I absolutely love Insight Out. And uh, I mean, I got to tell you, stuff in that book is, uh, I share those things with every group that I've ever had the chance to consult with or all the students I've ever worked with or, 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 or representatives from schools that I've talked to. I mean, it is really just the truth. So if you are looking for an innovation Bible, any of, uh-huh. any of the listeners out there, you need to pick up insight out because the, the tools that you put together in there are, are crucial, I yep. think to, to success in, in everything that, you know, Don and I are trying to push on um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, actually, the book is going to be coming out in paperback in September. And I've changed the title and the cover, and I've added in some interesting new material. Uh, I My publisher gave me the opportunity to do that, and I decided that the title was a little bit too clever. So the new title is actually going to be Creativity Rules. And um, I, you'll you'll see there's some new material in there that that I think you'd also find interesting. So that's coming out in September. You sure you didn't awesome. call it Innovation Bible? Or Innovation Bible, one or the other. The creativity yeah, yeah. rules. I love it. I love it. I love creativity it. Maybe, rules, yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So one of the things I was uh, wanting to talk to you a little bit about is the idea of the invention cycle. And seriously, back to how I was saying, I use that with everybody that I talk to, um, the, the invention cycle I find to be just extremely crucial. One of the things that a lot of students have difficulty in understanding is the difference between creativity and innovation. So what do you make something creative and then what makes something innovative? I love that you asked this question because you can ask people. In fact, I had my first class of the quarter yesterday, and I have the students write down what their definition of creativity is. And the definitions are all over the map. I mean, we would never be satisfied with that type of sloppiness of definitions in any other field, right? I'm a biologist by training. You would never do that if you were an engineer. If Even if you're a musician or an athlete, we need to have very clear definitions of what our objectives are. So I decided to put a stake in the ground with some definitions. And not only do they make things clear, but they, they're they useful in understanding where you are in this process. And so I define as creative ideas are new to you and innovative ideas are new to the world. I, I had this insight just a few weeks ago is that innovation is hard because creativity is easy. 
Now you're wondering, what, Tina, you sound like a crazy person. Oh, no, but no, here's I'm, the point. Creativity this. is what we do every single day. I mean, in order to for you to get dressed today and go to work, you had to be a creative problem solver. You know, what shirt do you put with these pants? What's the weather going to be like? You had to solve a problem. Now, you didn't have to solve something that was breakthrough, you know, today to get dressed or to, if you were going to go on a trip, you have to anticipate what's the weather's going to be, what's appropriate, you know, what's going to happen at the airport. So because we're natural creative problem solvers, we're not forced to come up with ideas that are new to the world every day. And innovation is a second language. It requires us to push further. And because we often fall back on creative solutions, we have to really be very clear on when we want to come up with a really innovative idea and use the tools that, that are available. And there are lots of tools for coming up with really breakthrough solutions. When I poured through, I'm kind of like Hunter. There were so many things in that book um, that I use both in class and then also in, in talking with people. Um, when was, you know, kind of your aha moment that as you were writing it, things made even more sense to you? Yeah. So when I started writing and when I started collecting my ideas, it's, they were very amorphous. And I tried lots of different ways to put it all together. But one of the things that really struck me <clears throat> during the process is that it's not linear. It's a cycle. And you start with imagination, your ability to envision things that don't exist. You move on to a creativity stage where you start solving problems in a sort of a incremental way. You move on to innovation where you start really using tools to power yourself to come up with new ideas. You move on to entrepreneurship where you start scaling them and, you know, where the rubber hits the road and getting them in the market. But this all leads back to imagination because you need to inspire the imagination of your, uh, your users, the imagination of the people on your team, the imagination of people who are going to invest in you. And this cycle goes around and around and around. And this is why creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship are such powerful change agents in our world because it's not just something that happens in a small space. It creates wave upon wave upon wave of more impact uh, in our community. I can't say I agree enough. As a matter of fact, it just made sense to me. The Catch-22 we have a lot of times when we are you know, in the innovation class is at the beginning of the year, we start off on that mind meld, all the, the new brainstorming, all the, you know, the collect and connects, all these things where our brain is on fire. And then their, their next desire is to be left alone. Like, you know, let me get in group flow and leave me alone. Don't give me two side distractions. And then all of a sudden the level of enthusiasm goes down. And then there's this return of, we need to be creative again. We need to have more open brainstorms. We need to have more creative play. And, and, and the catch 22 is, you know, when do you go back and forth? Because some people are like, okay, I, I got a great brainstorm, now leave me alone. And I think it's that returning back to imagination. You know, we, we seem to um, downplay it. Like, okay, to be imaginative is cool, but to be creative is even better and be innovative is king. Returning to that constant, at least once a week or every other week, imagination time, while it seems to be less than, it's still really, really, really important. Yeah, and, and so the, the model that I created, this invention cycle, 
um, allows you to then parse what actually has to happen at each stage. So when you say go back to imagination, imagination requires engaging in the world and envisioning what might be different. And you can always and should always go back to the imagination stage because the more engaged you are, the more opportunities you see, right? You start out with one observation, then that sort of starts the process. You need to go back to the beginning, in order to essentially evaluate your ideas and to get more inputs that allow you to go through the process yet again. So Tina, in working with this cycle, what do you see um, as the best problems to solve and how do you teach your students to find those problems? So uh, interesting question. Uh, One of the major drivers of this is motivation. And if you're not motivated enough at the, and the motivation and experimentation are in the creativity stage, right? And a little bit of motivation leads to a little experiment, which leads to then more motivation and a bigger experiment. And you've got this little cycle there that goes in the creativity stage. If you are not motivated enough to address the problem, what's going to happen is that when you get to the entrepreneurship stage, where you actually have to scale things and inspire other people, you're not going to have that energy because this process is very, very energy intensive, right? We know how hard it is. So you really need to pick a problem that is meaningful to you. And so I'm one of these people, I'm an idea generator and I have had many ideas. There should be a company that does this. There should be someone who offers this. There should be a service. And there are many times where I go, that's really great. I'd like to be a customer, but that's not where I'm going to put my energy because that's not a problem that I could. Right. Yeah. So you, you, you can't just say there should be something and, and be willing to put all your energy in unless it's something that really, really touches something inside of you that you go, okay, this is somewhere I can, I'm, I'm, I'm happy not to just talk about this at a cocktail party, but to really wake up every morning and want to address this problem. Uh, and I got to say, from what I've seen both in the class and with students that I've worked with outside the class, I mean, it, it totally mirrors that. I mean, we've had students that are just um, they're extremely passionate about the subject that they've picked to work on. Um, and those are the projects that survive after school is over. And those are the things that people keep doing and going off into the real world. And they make that their life. Exactly. Um, and the thing is, you, you, you could. OK, one thing that's important to keep in mind, though, and, and so this I'm going to now counter my own advice. Sure, go for it. Before something is your passion, it's something you know nothing about, right? And so engagement engagement is the master key that sort of opens this up. So it might be I don't know anything about, I don't know, restaurants. And I would never say, okay, I want to go run a restaurant. But maybe if I actually worked in a restaurant and I would say, wow, this is really interesting. I'm fascinated with customer service or I'm fascinated with dietary, the dietary needs of, of particular people or I, I'm – and that – could unlock a passion for me. So- You're totally right. That's what. That's why I love so much. Uh, I mean, exactly the environment we're trying to create. Because I can't tell you how much I've been inspired by the different things that my friends have been working on, and and how much I found. Like like I thought I was going to be an app developer. I had always thought I was going to do computer science for the rest of my life. But I really found business and and pushing creativity and affecting people and and that kind of stuff was really where I wanted to lie. So I mean, it's exactly like you're saying. Just by you know working in the environment, you get all of this sprung onto you. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that one of the problems that young people have is they say, I don't know what I'm passionate about. And honestly, 
you're not born with your passions. Your passions follow experiences you have. I, I think of even specific examples of faculty members I know at Stanford who, um, you know, they're biologists and they're working away on their projects and they're doing well. And then they end up with a kid who has some unusual ailment and they go, you know what, I'm going to start doing research on that. And all of a sudden, you know, their passions get unlocked. Um, I, I know companies, of course, most companies or a lot of companies get founded with someone saying, this is a problem I have in my own life. I'm going to figure this out and, and I'm going to tackle it. And so being motivated to solve a problem is critical critical. Um, and that motivation, as I said, doesn't have to be there at the beginning. You can have a little bit of motivation that leads you to get the experiences that then that end up uh, ramping up your motivation. You know, I love that. Uh, that obstacle is the way model, whether you're talking about, you know, when you're working at the jails or, mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden you have a child that's born with a rare disease and all of a sudden that becomes your 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 passion and, and, and your desire. The only thing that I've seen that really kills this um, and I mean, in, in bad ways, uh, both the culture and just, you know, overall projects, um, not to quote Don Henley, but, you know, pride and competition doesn't fill these empty arms. I, I, when all of a sudden certain schools that we've, you know, we've wanted to work with, sometimes they're like, they don't want to, they might not want to share because that's their idea. And I, I weigh in on pride and competition and how that just kills innovation. Yeah, it's um, I, one of the things that also kills it is people being afraid to share their ideas, um, that someone's going to steal them. Honestly, you are much more likely to get input, really valuable input from other people if you share what you're doing than you are someone's going to go off and do it. And it's funny. Let's say I'm writing a book and I decide to share some of the original ideas, initial ideas. You think someone's going to go off and go write a competing book? I mean, honestly, or if you're starting a company doing something, do you really think someone's going to drop everything they're doing and say, wow, I'm going to go start a XYZ company too? Uh, right. People are A, busy, and this is hard work. And, it's and a, you realize, yeah. Oh, let me just say one thing, Sorry. is that, you know, the, the problem you solved is just today's problem. Tomorrow, there's going to be another problem and another problem and another problem. And so um, it is a constant evolutionary process. If you share the problem you're dealing with today, it doesn't mean that someone's going to be able to scoop you. Well, and it also kills that. I, I can't tell you how many times it'll just kill a relationship when you're approached and go, before I have, before I open up my mouth, please sign this NDA. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, seriously, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a conversation, yeah. dude. And like, no, no, I've got such a great idea that you have to sign this before I even talk to you. My initial reaction is well, then I don't want to talk to you. You know, right. if, if you're, if you're going to stifle it right off the bat. So, you know, back to that pride and competition thing, I, I, I've seen so many times where, um, and, and I'll even do some consultancy work now with, with corporations and not just education. And I'm, I'm sometimes astounded that within a company, different departments will not share each other's information because their division deserves the credit. And if you think that that, you know, the, the, the people down the hall are going to get in, uh, -uh and I'm, and, and I'm over there scratching my head. I'm like, wait, you guys all work for the same company. And it's that competition of, you know, who's the golden boy or who's the golden group um, that they don't really advance forward because of pride and competition. So what you can do, though, is change the rules and the rewards and the recognition of people. So you can change the culture so that 
people are rewarded for contributing to other people's successes. There are some teams that do that. They evaluate, they look at who was on all the successful teams. So it might not be that, um, you know, you were the leader of the team, but you start seeing patterns that, oh, every time Don was on a team, that team was really successful. And so you can do things that squash competition. On the other hand, competition can sometimes be used in a really effective way. Um, and so thinking about when you want to deploy competition and when you don't is really, really important. You can't say it's, it, again, it's, uh, it's not black and white. It's uh, very nuanced. And it's one of those levers that you can deploy. I mean, right? Sporting events uh, wouldn't work if you didn't have any competition, right? People work really, really, really hard to accomplish something that looks really impossible because they're competing. So sometimes you can deploy that, but other times you might not want to. You know, interesting in what we were um, what we were talking about is that uh, exactly what you said about um, how people aren't going to steal your ideas; they're they're going to give you feedback. I mean, that's exactly what um, what uh, CEO Naveen Jain said when we um, had him on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, he he basically said, if you're that scared of your idea being stolen, then you're probably not working hard enough. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought that that was very cool how you mirrored that. Um, one thing that I always like to um, to touch on with uh, experts in education is, you know, that we've got a lot of teachers that are following this in, at the middle school, the high school and the elementary school level. And, you know, they may not be all the way um, on board into transitioning in a full like uh, genius hour or an innovation style class or, or something as autonomous as we're talking about here. But, you know, what do you think might be some interesting exercises that some of these teachers can work, um, can have their students work on in order to start introducing that mindset? Well, I like to give people lots of problems to solve. And starting out with little problems and having them just get bigger and bigger and bigger and until people start really gaining comfort with uncertainty, comfort with problem solving, seeing that problems are solvable and seeing that every problem is an opportunity. I mean, you can, you can say these things as much as you want, but these are actually skills, not knowledge, right? If I had a multiple choice test and one of the answers was every problem is an opportunity, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity, you could repeat it, you could say it, you could check the box, but that doesn't mean you've actually internalized the idea. So you actually have yeah. to have experiences that allow you to internalize that so that the next time you actually see a problem, you go, you know what? There's an opportunity in there. That's awesome. Tina, I, from the bottom of my heart, every time we talk, it always fills my brain and you've got me racing once again. Um, I'm excited uh, that you're you're going to um, you know have the paperback out. Again, what's the title? What's the new title going to be? It's, uh, it's going to be uh, Creativity Rules. Okay. Um, you have been a tour de force, uh, just for full disclosure, when I was starting off this crazy, wacky, uh, idea of a class, the first person to help me guide through was you. And I, I owe so much to you, not just an in inspiration, but in guidance. Um, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope more people, uh, discover the gem that you are, uh, you are doing more for innovation and in ed than, or just innovation in general. And for that, I thank you, um, to our listeners, to point them to all the different places you're on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. 
I, uh, probably best is to follow me on Twitter at T Seelig. So it's T S E E L I G. Um, I also have a new podcast. So uh, uh, maybe you'll oh, have to be cool. a guest at some point. It's uh, Stanford Innovation Lab. And uh, I'm delighted to share. We've got a, a, at least a dozen episodes up already and uh, a whole bunch. And one of the things that we're going to do in a couple of weeks is we're going to actually have a challenge episode where I'm going to give the audience a creative problem solving challenge. And then we'll get a chance to see what sort of interesting ideas people come up with so uh, maybe some of your students will participate i uh, it would be an honor it would be an honor i can guarantee i'm, you I'm excited to. To yeah 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 so it'll be it'll come out in a couple of weeks is the challenge episode on stanford innovation lab so this was such a pleasure you guys are incredibly inspiring and i love watching what you're doing thank you so much for having me i appreciate everything tina thank you for joining us you thank bet you. Thanks. thanks so much there you go, Tina Selig of Stanford University. I sincerely appreciated having her on. You got all the information. You got her contact information. Now go follow Tina. Pick up her book. I'm telling you, you will profit from it. As always, I appreciate your support. The way we grow is that you guys are sharing this on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, especially LinkedIn here lately. And uh, we sincerely appreciate that. And we're also finding great guests because of the introductions you guys are making on those online platforms. Want to be my best friend? Give us an honest review and star rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. All right. This is Don Wetrick reminding you again, those opportunities are everywhere. We'll see ya.